0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. May God bless the reading and hearing of His Holy Word to us this morning. I remember uh, a few years ago when my children were younger, how important it was on Christmas Day to have batteries ready for the toys. If you didn't have batteries, you were in big trouble because a lot of these toys that they were receiving had to have some power. Or maybe you've ever uh, had the problem of having a power tool that you wanted to use and you didn't have access to any electricity. And so you had to do something by hand that would have been much easier with power. Power is important. We enjoy uh, the power of electricity this morning. We have lights. We have air conditioning. Thank the Lord. We have all these things that are provided by electricity, by power. And without power, things don't happen. Things don't go. Things don't move. And the church is no different. We see here this morning as we look at this passage, the church is empowered. And we want to see this morning how the church, having been established by Christ, by His life, death, and resurrection, has been also empowered by the Holy Spirit. We read about it here in Acts chapter 2. And there are two things that we see uh, here that I want to show us here, first of all, that Jesus establishes the church, and also, secondly, that Jesus empowers the church. Now, the premise from which I am operating in this sermon series is this. Luke was the author of two New Testament books, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles that we're studying. They form a two-part series, the Gospel of Luke, uh, is the part is part one, and it is and it is about what Jesus did and taught while he was on earth. Part two, the book of Acts, is about what Jesus continued to do and to teach after he ascended into heaven. That's the important distinction, uh, or or important point that we make about the book of Acts, and we're reading it in light of that. We're studying it in light of that. Verse one: All that Jesus continued to do and teach is what Luke is recording for us. So the the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven and is sitting on the right hand of God the Father doesn't mean he's not working. He is continuing to work, and the book of Acts records for us how he continues to work in the world, in the first century, and beyond, even to our day. So in reference to Acts, we must ask ourselves, If Jesus is continuing to to work and to act and to do, what is Jesus continuing to do now that he has left the earth? What does Luke tell us he did? What is recorded in the book of Acts? If we would thumb through it and look through it, we see here uh, that the gospel was proclaimed and the New Testament church was created, established, and strengthened Not only here in Jerusalem, as we read in Acts 2, but it spread throughout the world. As Jesus told the disciples in chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. The gospel spreads from here in Jerusalem, and at the end of the book we find Paul in Rome sharing the gospel there, the capital of the world at that time. So the the book of Acts is telling us how the church was created and strengthened throughout the world, from Jerusalem to Rome. Now, I believe the church existed in the Old Testament. This is is not a a new church that's being established. But here uh, we see the church in Acts entering into a fuller, more complete stage. It's the New Testament church. Acts chapter 2 is the inauguration of, Of what we call the New Testament church era. The church as we know it now in the history of redemption. So what was begun there is what we experience now today. It looks a little different in our cultural context and in 21st century but we are in that same era. Now one day when Christ returns the church will reach its fullness, a new stage. When Christ returns, the church will be transformed into all that God has purposed for it. But we live today in this era that was inaugurated in the text that we're examining today. Now this is vitally important that we understand. When Christ left the earth, He established an institution on earth. He established an institution on earth. That institution is the church. Much maligned in our day, dismissed by many, but it is Christ's institution on earth. Now the question is begged, what is the church? What is the church? If it's Jesus' institution, what is it? Well, the church is all those who repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's who the church is. The church is not a building. The church is people, people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection to establish the church. He died for the church. He rose again for the church. And then Acts tells us how Christ established the church after he ascended to heaven. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He came to earth. He humbled himself, stepping down from his glory. And he, he, his humiliation consisted in a life of servitude to sinful human beings. He was poor, despised, and rejected by the very people he created. And in some instances, by the very people he came to save. He willingly submitted to a humanly unjust death in order to meet the demands of divine justice on our behalf. He suffered in a physically and spiritually inscrutable manner. He went to all this incredible trouble to save and establish His people, the church. He lived for the church. He died for the church. He rose from the dead for the church. And He ascended to heaven for the church he now intercedes for the church and one day he will return for the church jesus is all about the church now these people who claim to be christians and say well i don't believe in organized religion they do not understand how jesus operates and what jesus is doing in the world jesus has an institution and it's called the church and it's on earth and he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is all about the church, building the church. Now the waters are muddied for us, and, and those people who would, who would reject the church as an institution, because there are many kinds of churches in the world, and they're different. And there are many things on which these different churches disagree, and, it, and it's confusing and frustrating people get frustrated with the church and they want to abandon the church. And they see it in, with all of its faults and the difficulties that it faces. But there are true churches and there are false churches. So when you boil it all down, what makes a church a church? I think I've given you a quote there on your outline from James Bannerman, who wrote a great book, a two-volume work, kind of like, two-volume like Luke, except his is not as great as Luke called The Church of Christ. It's a very helpful book, and he says, To hold and to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ is the only sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church because this is the one thing for the sake of which a church of Christ has been instituted on earth. Now, there are things that are essential to the being of a church, and then there are things essential to the well-being of a church. I'm making the distinction there. There are things that are essential to the being of a church. There's there's something that is very essential for a church to exist. And then there's some things that an existing church must engage in in order to be healthy. So, being versus well-being. Now, there's only one thing essential for the being of the church, for it to be a church. And that is faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. If a church does not embrace and proclaim the biblical gospel, then it is not a true church. A true local church is a gathering of those who profess faith in the gospel and proclaim it faithfully and accurately. That makes a church. Now, there may be differences about uh, the, the form of government. There may be differences uh, about the ministry. There may be dis- differences about the, the sacraments and the, the ordinances of the church. and And the officers of the church, but if they are faithful in proclaiming the gospel, they are a true church. See, the other things, the ordinances, the sacraments, the officers, uh, the ministry, those things and others are for the well-being of the church. They're not for the being of the church. Those things make a church healthy. So what we see in Acts... And in our own experiences, if you look through all of Acts, and we, we think about it in our church experience, uh, we see churches are formed in places where people embrace the gospel. That makes sense, right? That's what we see in Acts 2. Uh, a, a, a large number was added this day. Well, you read it at the, towards the end of the chapter. The, added to what? Somewhere about verse 42. 3,000 people were added to their number. The number of who? The church. The church. People embraced the gospel, they embraced Christ by faith, and they became the church. And when Paul went out on his missionary journeys, people in Thessalonica, in Philippi, in Ephesus, in Corinth, they embraced the gospel and they became churches, part of the bigger church. So a church especially a local church, is a band of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and become his disciples. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were in order to save a people for himself. These people are called the church. Jesus came to earth to establish those people. I feel like Vince Lombardi today. You know, when Vince Lombardi was, he was the great coach of the Green Bay Packers, and uh, and and they got just defeated really bad one game, and so coming to the next practice that Monday after they lost uh, so so poor played so poorly uh, in a game, uh, the players were expecting them to just get you know ripped into by Coach Lombardi, but he stood up before him he said gentlemen, this is a football. Now they were all professional football players they knew. That uh, what a football was. But what he was saying to them was they needed to get back to the basics. They need to understand the fundamentals of what it meant to play football. And they went on to have uh, a successful season after that. We're, this truth, Jesus establishes church, is something that people have forgotten in our day and time. Because they see the church, they mock the church, the church is, is waning and struggling. Look at these empty pews. And we can say, it's just not worth it. The church is Jesus' institution. He is establishing it on earth. And He will establish it here. That brings us to the next point. He needs to empower His church, or He has empowered His church. We need to recognize that He empowers His church. As I said, there's only one thing essential to the being of the church, and that is faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. But there are several things Christ has given for the well-being. Of the church. The officers, the ordinances, the sacraments, the ministry, the worship, and practice faithfully these things and maybe a few others make a church healthy. We've thought about this in the past about what makes a healthy church. And when we think about growth of a church, the focus shouldn't be on growing, it should be on being healthy. Because when you're healthy, you grow. You think of a child, you don't go up to your child and say, Grow! You know, try harder to grow. No, you feed them, uh, you get exercise, they get a lot of rest, and they grow. You don't have to water them. uh, You know, there's certain things you don't have to do for a child to make them grow. But there are certain things you do to make them grow so that they'll be healthy, and then natural growth will spring from that. The church is the same way. You have to do certain things for it to grow, for it to be healthy in order for it to grow. Jesus Christ gave the church, its ordinances, sacraments, ministry, uh, so so many things, for its well-being. Now, a church can be a true church by embracing and proclaiming the gospel, and it can be a healthy church by faithfulness to use those things Jesus has given, has ordained for the church's health and growth. Now, that's important. Jesus has ordained certain things for the church's health and growth. He has an institution that he has established on earth and he has, uh, he has ordained certain things and, and given certain things to the church for its health. He has put those things in place. And we will read about them as we travel through the book of Acts. Jesus has taken those things and he has empowered them. Jesus has empowered the church here at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is the Greek term used to denote what the Old Testament calls the Feast of Weeks. Uh, This yearly uh, feast occurred 50 days after Passover ended. Uh, It's called the Feast of Weeks because it was celebrated uh, seven weeks, the, the day after seven weeks from the last day of Passover. So you have seven weeks and Feast of Weeks. Uh, The term Pentecost refers to the fact that it is 50 days after Pentecost. You recognize the penta, uh, which means five, or in this case, 50. It was a feast of thanksgiving for the barley harvest, so similar to our thanksgiving time. We give thanks to God for the bounty of the harvest. This particular year, recorded for us in Acts 2, something significant happened at this feast at Pentecost. Now, there's much confusion about Acts 2 in Christian circles today. And this this confusion weakens the church. Too often this passage is only interpreted individually instead of corporately. We need a right understanding of this passage so that we can understand the empowerment of the church. What is the significance of what happened at Pentecost that year? At this particular feast, after Jesus died and rose from the dead and subsequently ascended to heaven, the church received or, to put it another way, was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The terms, and receive, the terms received and baptized are interchangeable. They, they mean the same thing in the New Testament. Some people confuse that. But to receive or to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is the same thing. It's an interchangeable term. This fulfilled, as Jesus tells us here in this passage in Acts 1 as well, the promise of God the Father. And the Old Testament, Prophet Joel prophesied about this day that is mentioned later in chapter 2. John the Baptist, right before Jesus began his earthly ministry, said Jesus would baptize people in the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, to his disciples in John 16 I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you so this is promised by god prophesied by joel john the baptist probably other places as well and as well foretold by jesus it is important to understand that this is a one time event a one time event in the history of the church that is repeated four times let me explain what i mean there it's a one-time event at one point the church receives the holy spirit the institution of the church that christ has established receives the holy spirit and we have the phenomena that, that go along with it speaking in tongues Uh, amidst the nations and the the tongues and the mighty rushing wind, etc., and the the proclaiming of the mighty works of God here. At this point, the only people who are there are Jewish people. They're there, and and God is establishing His church, and it's empowered. But if you stop there, you would think, okay, it's only for Jews. But when we reach chapter 8 we find the same experience by the Samaritans. They received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews did in Acts chapter 2. And then by the time you get to chapter 10 and 11, the Gentiles have a duplicate experience. So you see, what did Jesus say? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 19, the final time this happens, It was the disciples of John the Baptist who had not really embraced faith in Christ yet. By repeating this experience to all these people groups, Jesus demonstrated that the church is not just a Jewish church. It's open to Samaritans. It's open to Gentiles. It's open to to everybody from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the fact that the church uh, was established with every language tells us the same thing. See Pentecost? the speaking in tongues, people get hung up on the speaking in tongues. Well, it just served a purpose. You know, when you start a church, you have to decide one thing at the beginning. What language are we going to speak? Now, if I tr- plant a church up in D'Iberville, uh, we don't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what language to speak. You know, we know we're going to speak English. But maybe if I'm planting a church in Miami, Florida, I might have to decide, am I going to reach out to my English-speaking residents of Miami, or am I going to, to, to reach out to the Hispanic population? If I'm reaching out to the Hispanic, I would choose to speak in Spanish, obviously. And it's true in other parts of the world as well. A church planner picks a language from the get-go, and that limits the people to whom you can minister, because they can't understand. When Jesus established His church, He didn't pick a language. He picked every language. So everybody could hear it. It's for every tongue, tribe, and nation. And you see it through the book of Acts spreading out. So not just the Jews getting the Holy Spirit, the Samaritans get the Holy Spirit, the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit. We're all part of the body of Christ. We're all brought in. When a person becomes a believer, when they become a part of the Universal church by faith in Christ, remember? That's what makes a person, a, 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 makes something a true church. And what makes a believer a true Christian is faith in Christ. When that person receives Christ, they also receive the Holy Spirit. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit because they become part of the empowered church. Individual believers, yes, they are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit and so is Jesus' institution, the church, because we're part of that church. 1 Corinthians 12, I've given that to you on your outline. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or frees, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We all, by faith, receive the Holy Spirit when we, by faith, receive Christ. It's not a subsequent thing. It happens when we're converted to to be Christians. And when Jesus stood on the last day of the great feast in John 7, it tells us that he, He stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Those who believe in Him receive the Spirit. You remember I said, there's one thing that is essential to the being of a church. There are several things essential to the well-being of the church. And because of this fact, because true churches have been empowered by the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, and the other places in Acts Those things Jesus has given the church, has has, uh, appointed to the church for its health, those things are empowered. So in the context of the church, preaching is empowered by the Spirit. Praying is empowered by the Spirit. The sacraments are empowered by the Spirit. The officers are empowered by the Spirit. Jesus is building His church and He has empowered it to do so. To be built. The gospel isn't just an argument that we're making. It is the power of God for salvation, Paul says in Romans 1. Prayer isn't just some religious exercise. It is empowered by the Spirit. The sacraments aren't merely rituals. They are empowered by the Spirit to be means of growth and grace. You know, it may feel like we're just doing uh, a ritual, but that's not true because it's in the context of the church, done by faith, the Holy Spirit empowers it. The officers are not merely board members. They have been called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill their function in the body of Christ. You, as a church member, have been empowered with a spiritual gift for the building up of the body of Christ. See, the Spirit uses these means for the well-being of His church. The church has been established by Christ and empowered by His Spirit. Look at this quote by James Bannerman. The church, as a society, owes its origin to Christ. It derives from Him its government and office bearers, It receives from Him its laws and constitution. It draws from Him its spiritual influence and grace. It accepts at His hand its ordinances and institution. It acts in His name and is guided in its proceeding by His authority. In the expression that the Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church and in the fact that He is the only source of church power, there is much more implied than that he is the founder of the Christian society. He is both its founder and its administrator, being the ever-present source of life and influence, of ordinance and blessing, of law and authority, of word and doctrine within the community. Through his spirit and his word and his ordinances alike of government and grace, Christ both originates and administers his church upon the earth. Jesus Christ establishes His church, He empowers His church, and He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, because the church has been established by Christ, by His life, death, and resurrection, and has been empowered by the Holy Spirit, get involved in the church. Get involved in the church. If it's that important to Christ, it ought to be important to anyone who bears the name Christian. Prioritize the church. It's Jesus' institution empowered by His Spirit. That is important and it should be a priority in your life. Participate in the church because the Spirit uses the church. He uses its, the, the preaching of the Word. He uses the ordinances. He, he uses the leadership of the church because He has given those things to the church for its benefit. So participate Come to church. Be involved. I'm preaching to the choir there in the congregation because you're in church. But yes, be faithful in attendance to the church, as the Scripture tells us. And support the church. It's a worthy cause. It's Christ's cause in the world. And it should be supported by your money, by your time, by your gifts and abilities. You should support the church because it's Christ's institution, that he is empowered on the earth. And it also means that we should invite people to church, get them involved in the church. Uh, The church is something worth being connected to, and people have lost that in our day and time. This text tells us how much the church, uh, uh, or how the church as we know it, was inaugurated and empowered. And there are significant truths here about the church that we need to embrace, be aware of, and, and let it uh, influence our practice. And if we are not aware of the significance that Acts 2 has on the church today, we will not have a clear understanding of who we are and what we're doing as a church. And I think that's part of our problem here at First Presbyterian Church. We're not clear on this. What are we trying to do? Who are we? So I believe this study for us Acts 2 and going forward is vital in us moving forward as a church. Think of it as uh, using military imagery. The the scriptures speak of the church militant. Uh, If an army is confused about its mission or its weapons or, or its empowerment to use those weapons and what it's trying to do with those weapons, it will be an ineffective army. When an army knows its mission is to take that hill, when an army has the weapons, and the technical knowledge on the use of their weapons they are going to use in taking that hill. And when an army has been empowered and given the authority and command to take that hill, and if they have the courage to take that hill, then there's nothing but the enemy to stop them from taking that hill. You know your mission. You've got the weapons and the know-how. You've been empowered from an authority, encouraged to engage. All that's left is to go. And the same is true of the church. We have a mission, and we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. We have a mission. Uh, We have weapons. Uh, We have the authority and the power to use them. And we know that they're effective. All we lack maybe is courage to do so. Or maybe, you know, what's encouraging is to know that your weapons are empowered. You know, I I don't need a whole lot of courage when I know that that I'm fighting with guns and the other the other people are, are fighting with rocks or stones. You know, that doesn't take a whole lot of courage to go into that battle because I know I'm going to win it. Our, our weapons are powerful. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we should not lack courage. And I hope that does encourage you today as we think about the church and how it is Christ's institution and is empowered to do what Christ wants it to do, to be, uh, to be built up and strengthened in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray.